rise. The United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois now is in session. The Honorable Judge Julius J. Hoffman presiding. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, good morning. 69, CR 180, the United States of America versus David Dellinger at all for trial. are proud to welcome a great political gathering of Americans who've come here to shape the future of a nation. And as long as I'm mayor of this town, there'll be law and order in Chicago. Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and we have a special one for you today. We have the legendary Jerry Lefcourt. We've had a lot of great lawyers on the show, Michael Tiger, Lee Bailey, Alan Dershowitz, Roy Black. This is another one of the OGs, Jerry Lefcourt, and he's going to talk about the trial of the century. I know we throw that term around a lot, but the Chicago 8 trial is literally one of the most important trials in American history. You have to remember the timing in the late 60s when the Vietnam War was going on, there were all these protests. And in Chicago, all of these well-known anti-war activists, peaceful activists, got together to try to protest in Chicago. And the federal government decided to charge all of these guys, including Abby Hoffman, in federal court. And you're going to hear about these eight different people from all over the place being brought together in a federal trial where Jerry Lefcourt is at the middle of it representing Abby Hoffman. The judge was insane trying to jail the lawyers themselves, the clients for contempt. And the stories are just awesome. I'd like to thank Renato Stabile and Josh Dubin for putting me in touch with Jerry Lefcourt, who's just got so many great stories. I could have talked to him all day. Check out Jerry Lefcourt in For the Defense next. All right, we're here with the wonderful and great legend Jerry Lefcourt from New York. And I'm uh, really honored to be speaking with him. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Hey, it's great to be here. And congrats on your big victory. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I want to talk to you about um, a case that I think, you know, put you on the map, but also one of the best and most important cases in our history, the Chicago 7. Some call it the Chicago 8. What do you call it? The Chicago 7 or 8 case? Everybody involved with the case calls it the Chicago 8 because the 8th defendant, Bobby Seale, the head of the Black Panther Party, started the trial without a lawyer and ultimately was severed. But it, to us involved, it's always been the 8th. All right. So I got to ask you, how you were in your 20s at the time when you get this case. I was. I was like 27. <laughs> um, and, and how do you get involved in the biggest case in the country at 27 years old? For the well, most important I, defendant probably in the case, right? Yes. I was a public defender in New York. And I found that what we were doing as public defenders was a disgrace. We were overwhelmed with cases. We had no resources. We barely had books. And so upset was I, I couldn't sleep at night. So I decided to try to organize a lawyer's union. And lo and behold, it caught on. And after the third organizing citywide meeting of hundreds of lawyers, the powers that be found out who was doing this and they fired oh. saying it was unethical 
for a lawyer to be in a union, their obligation was to the clients. So I met somebody by the name of William Kunzler when I was fired, who thought it was an outrage and immediately brought a civil suit, left court versus legal aid. And the New York Times made me a cause celeb, basically saying, how could they fire this guy who only wanted to provide reasonable defense for the poor? Amazing. And Abby Hoffman read those articles. And I got a call one day from somebody who said, I have a doctor and a dentist, but what I really need is a lawyer. <laughs> and three criminal cases. I said, who is this? He said, it's Abby. I, Abby who? I didn't know who he was. <laughs> and he invited me down to the Lower East Side of Manhattan where he had a one-room apartment. And he actually cooked something. And we spoke for 12 hours. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's a, quite a way to meet a client. Um, and so when the sun came up, he said, let's make a pact. I'll make a revolution. You keep me out of jail. <laughs> and, I, and I believed him. And did you keep him out of jail? I kept him out of jail and he did make a revolution. Un unbelievable. And, and so just to set the stage, Jerry, because I think a lot of folks who, who listen, a lot of the younger lawyers may not understand what was going on in the country in the late 60s and how important this trial was. Can you, can you just sort of set the stage? What's going on? Um, why are these folks charged? And, and um, just give us a little background on it. The anti-war movement and civil rights movements were blooming in the mid 60s and by 1968, it was a firestorm. Martin Luther King had now come out not only for civil rights, but against the war in Vietnam. Robert Kennedy was running for president on the, on the platform of ending the Vietnam War. Body bags were coming in by God knows hundreds weekly. And in 1968, the most important year probably in American history. We had two assassinations, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. We had a Tet Offensive where the Viet Cong and Vietnam government, North Vietnam government was attacking in incredible ways and being successful. And it was all coming to a head. And the convention in 1968 in Chicago to seek a candidate for the Democratic Party was where it was at. And the anti-war movement, civil rights movements were meeting to protest the possibility of a pro-war candidate, Hubert Humphrey. So this was a crucial time in American history. And, and so, and it sounds like just a, a wild time, your client, um, was the head of one movement. Um, can you tell us about that movement? Abby, who was very active in the civil rights movement in a suit, decided he was going to organize youth culture. Hippies, dropouts, anti-war fanatic young people. And he started something called the Youth International Party, which became known as the Yippies. The Yippies but he never lost the focus. 
he knew what he was doing. He was organizing, you know, the youth culture to oppose the Vietnam War and be pro-civil rights in a, in a most creative way. And, and what about the other folks um, who are on trial in the Chicago 8? We, you talked a little about Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers. Who else is involved? One of the people involved, David Dellinger, it was called United States versus Dellinger, by the way, Yeah, was an older person. Maybe he was in his 50s. And he had been an anti-war pacifist for years. And he had organized the mobilization to end the Vietnam War, which was made up of the peace groups, church groups, all kinds of pacifist groups. But in a big way, they had a big following. And in addition, there were two young SDS types, uh, Rennie Davis and Tom Hayden, who 10 years earlier or eight years earlier, founded the Students for a Democratic Society. They wrote the Port Huron Statement, famous as it was. And they were, of course, very important in the anti-war. Every campus had a Students for a Democratic Society chapter. And so you're there with these huge figures in the anti-war movement. I'm I'm actually also really and probably more interested in the the big time lawyers who are with you. You're a kid at the time, but there are some legends there: uh, Kunstler, Michael Tiger, uh, Wineglass. How uh, how was it working with those folks? Well, uh, it was very interesting. I mean, Tom Hayden pulled Lenny Wineglass out of Newark, who he met during the Newark riots, and they became friends. So he went on the big stage coming from a small state practice in North New Jersey. Michael Tiger, who was very young at the time, we all were, yeah. had, you know, been at Williams and Connolly and worked for the famous Edward Bennett Williams. Tiger, brilliant as could be, was joined to do pretrial motions with some of us. And uh, he was in Washington because he was supposed to clerk in the Supreme Court, but his clerkship was revoked because of his anti-war activity. Amazing. So it was an interesting group. Believe it or not, William Kunstler probably had done two arraignments in his life. He was really? a civil rights lawyer. He huh. wasn't a criminal defense lawyer. And which is how I got involved with them. He wanted me to help him with the Black Panthers and what have you. And that's how I became involved because Fascinating. It, yeah, he was just not experienced in criminal proceedings. And, and how did you all get along? I mean, it must have been such a wild group, not only of defendants, of lawyers, these young uh, uh, bucks as, as trial lawyers. I mean, did you all get along during the trial? We did. We did. I mean, first of all, we were representing large personalities right. who knew what they wanted to do. And pretty much, uh, by the way, didn't really have a lot of involvement with each other before the trial. I remember arraignment day in April of 1969. We were all in a lawyer's conference room. Bobby Seale was going around to people he thought were lawyers to get their business cards. 
He went over to Dave Dellinger thinking he was <laughs> a lawyer and asked for his card. Great. I mean, this wasn't a conspiracy in that sense. The government threw them together because they wanted to repress the anti-war and civil rights movements, not about anything to do with the individuals and their interactions. It, and in a lot of the coverage, I mean, you see, um, you know, that the defendants were, were, you know, speaking back to the judge and, and sort of speaking out in public. I mean, was, was that really how it was going down during the trial or, or were, how did it go down? Abby, brilliant, genius. Before the trial, he put scorecards together. It was the United States versus the conspiracy. And he actually published these things. He was intent from minute one to make this the most wild political trial there ever was. It was, in my view, the most important trial in American history. It changed people's views about the war and civil rights. It involved millions of people in the streets. This was big time, and Abby was a genius. And, and did you all get along with the prosecutors, or was it just hatred and animosity between the two teams? Total tables? animosity. The movie, to the extent that they have them as you know being reasonable to each other, was absurd. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew they were trying to destroy this movement. And this movement was fighting back. Wonderful. And, and, you know, so you have the animosity, of course, with the prosecutors, but seemed like from everything that I've read, the judge was just insanely uh, against you guys and, and doing everything in his power, not just to hurt your clients, but to hurt you all. He was a bizarre character. Everybody, and even the government, realized how off the wall he could be. I mean, it was just... Shocking, shocking to everybody. I mean, uh, we could get to it, but I got jailed. And the Seventh Circuit, without anybody asking them, released me. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you about that. So so let's set it up. I mean, you know, you're all there trying the case. Seal is, is brought in, but he has a problem with his lawyer, right? Well, Charles R. Gary, the famous... Californian lawyer who had represented Huey P. Newton in one of the most famous uh, murder trials ever. Free Huey Newton movement went national. He was to represent Bobby Seale. The indictment was April. The trial was set for September. In August, Charles Gary goes to the judge and says, I need a gallbladder operation. I'd like to adjourn the trial a month or two. The judge denies that simple request, unheard of. Bobby Seale had been indicted in Connecticut for the murder of a so-called infiltrator into the Black Panther Party, an informant, supposedly. He was ultimately acquitted. But he was in jail in Connecticut, brought to Chicago, and he was in jail at the time, and his lawyer was not there. And the issue was what was going to happen. The judge tried to get other lawyers to volunteer to represent him. He only knew Charles Gavard. That's who was his lawyer. And that's who was going to be his lawyer or there was going to be no lawyer. Mm -hmm. And the judge ordered us to consider representing him. I remember 
Uh, he ordered me to represent him. I, I re absolutely refused a court order. He held me in contempt. It was uh, the morning uh, of a proceeding, and over lunchtime, I'm in a cell with Bobby Seale. <laughs> the, the government had opened, Kunstler had opened, and I said to Bobby, what are you going to do? He said, what do you mean? I said, it's your turn. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So what happens? He goes into the courtroom after lunch, tries to get up to deliver his opening statement. The judge says, sit down and forces him into a chair. Ultimately, marshals come and put him in the chair. He keeps talking. I want to represent myself. They gag him. Oh they God. chain him to the chair. This went on for a few days before ultimately the world was watching this insane thing going on in this Chicago courtroom. And they finally severed him out of the trial. So, so the judge won't continue the case so he can have a lawyer and then won't let him open for it on his own? Won't let him defend himself. Oh my God. So, and, and, and so you tell the judge, no, you won't represent him. Um, how, how does the judge react to you? He said that you're in contempt. And it was a Friday. Uh, he had originally issued arrest warrants for all the lawyers who work pre-trial stuff. But, uh, you know, I came out there voluntarily and he put me in jail Friday afternoon. Tried to do, keep the day of court ends and I'm in a cell. Cook County Jail. Oh my God. And it's Jerry. dinner time. And down the hall comes this smelly fish. Of course, it was a Friday. And I said to myself, this is ridiculous. I can't eat this. And I said to Seal, I don't know how you eat this. I just couldn't possibly. And he said, left court, there's no menu. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good line. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you went to jail before Abby Hoffman did. Absolutely. <laughs> it was probably a badge of honor, right? To, to be able to go to jail before Hoffman. He probably was Absolutely. jealous. Absolutely. About 10 o'clock that night or 9.30, an order comes from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reversing the judge's contempt order or adjourning it till Monday. And out I go. Wow. Shocking. And nobody had asked the Seventh Circuit to do that. You thought you were going to have to spend the weekend? No, no question. It was it was after court proceedings. It was at nighttime. Kunstler and Tiger couldn't get you out, huh? They, you yeah. had to wait for the Seventh Circuit. Kunstler came by at around 7 o'clock and asked if he could borrow the keys to my car and apartment in New York. <laughs> come on. Come on. He was going to leave you and take take the car and the apartment. Well, it was after court hours. <laughs> That's great. Oh. <laughs> that is great. That is great. So did he get the keys? Yeah, I gave them to him. At 9.30 when we were released, uh, I got the last plane home to New York. And before I could get settled, Abby was on the phone saying, I called the press conference for tomorrow morning in your office. I said, What? What are we going to say? The judge is going to sentence me on Monday. <laughs> he had only held me without bail pending sentence. 
to contempt committed in his presence. Whatever I say is going to be factored into that sentence. Yeah. He said, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. The next morning, Saturday morning, he comes to the office and he says, haven't there been lawyers upset about this? I said, everybody's upset about it. Lawyers all over the country are upset about it. He said, well, why don't you say that they decided to come to Chicago to protest the sentencing on Monday? I said, that's what I should say at the press conference. He said, why not? (laughs) Wow. I love it. Press conference was played all of Saturday and all of Sunday. Lawyers came from everywhere. Wow. What a story. The Harvard Law School faculty unanimously signed a statement demanding release. I remember two or three professors, including Alan Dershowitz, came to protest. And by the time Monday morning came around, the news was so wild on this that the judge backed down. Wow. Genius by Abby. Of course. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So, so you, he doesn't sentence you to any more jail. That's it. No, he withdraws the contempt. Wow. Unbelievable. Look, so, so let me ask you, you're, you're this young lawyer, this huge case, you get put in jail. How do you open at this? Like, what's your opening about? It was crazy. One of the weird things about this is that Consular and I were in the two biggest cases in the country, Chicago and the Black Panther case in New York, the Panther 21. Right. The prosecutors got together on both cases and set the trial for the same day. (laughs) You know, Consular and I were... It was a moment of truth here for, for me and Kunstler because I'm 27 years old. The Panthers are facing attempt murder of police, conspiracy to blow up police stations, life imprisonment. And the Chicago 8 are facing a five-year felony inciting a riot. Hey, which one would you? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you Kunstler tried the Chicago said, case first? No, Kunstler said, you do New York, I'll do Chicago. We had this, we were there on the same schedule. Oh my goodness. So at the beginning of the trial, Lenny stepped in to represent Abby while I was in New York trying to get the Panther trial adjourned. Holy cow. I did finally get it adjourned and came back out to Chicago, but it was a bizarre time. Wow. So, so you get that case adjourned, and then does it just trail this one? It, it doesn't start for six months later. And then it went 13 months before all of the defendants were acquitted in the longest trial in New York's history. Unbelievable. I, I, I just finished a three-week trial. I cannot imagine doing a 13-month trial. I really cannot. It's bizarre. And, and, and were you getting paid? Well, we had various... Uh, benefactors. There were books. Random House was giving everybody book contracts. <laughs> right. You know, it was that kind of fundraiser, famous Leonard Bernstein fundraiser. Right. You, I don't know if you ever read about that, but that was bizarre. Tell us, tell us. Um, Tom Wolfe wrote a book called Radical Chic, which was all about Leonard 
and uh, his wife throwing a fundraiser of all of these larger-than-life characters like uh, producers, directors, actors, artists, musicians at, at his Park Avenue home. And Radical Chic was about how they were serving canopies for the Black Panthers. And Tom Wolfe, in his white suit, was putting down all these people who attended fundraisers to, to help the likes of the Black Panthers. It was truly bizarre. I mean, Tom Wolfe and I had some real confrontations over the years. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so, so you're in this first trial. Um, you get back from getting the other case continued. What, what is the defense? What, what is the defense that you guys are putting forward for these folks? Well, essentially, all of these groups were coming to protest the Democratic National Convention and to fight for anti-war and civil rights themes. The, the powers that be in Chicago, the mayor and the, and the city bureaucrats, refused to give any permits for demonstrations. There was nothing that, everything was illegal. They created a situation where in America, with the First Amendment, you couldn't come and protest because you couldn't go anywhere. Abby demanded the permit to sleep in the park. Of course, everything was denied. So what was set up was a war. And the police, according to a sort of state, state of Illinois investigation later, committed a police riot, beating people, clubbing them. It was bizarre. And now on television. And, and you guys, um, the lawyers, you end up getting beat, not there, but later on in the Black Panther case, right? Yes, yes. What happened with that? Well, the Panthers, there were, there were several Panthers accused of assaulting police. I went to the arraignment. The Panthers were produced from a cell. They were bloody. They were bandaged. They'd obviously been beaten. The so-called police, they were accused of assaulting or chuckling in the side of the courtroom, laughing and talking amongst themselves. While the Panthers are held on a hundred thousand dollars bail each, they got maybe two dollars each, and the adjourned date for a preliminary hearing. The police organized a group of protesters, of cops, off-duty cops, to protest the Panthers. And when Councilman and I showed up at the courthouse, there was a gauntlet of cops on both sides cursing at us, nigger lovers, swinging at us, kicking us, oh my God. commies. And Wallace were president, they were saying. It was bizarre. Wow. Wow. And there were six Panthers in the hallway, couldn't get into the courtroom because every seat in the courtroom was taken by an off-duty cop. There's maybe 500 off-duty cops that were there to, to protest the Panthers and the Panther lawyers. What a crazy time, Jerry. Unbelievable. Federal investigation, state investigation, DAs, FBIs, 
it was bizarre. So, so just to, sorry, we're bouncing around, but to go back to the Chicago eight, um, they don't give these permits. They, they really trounce on the first amendment is the defense basically, you know, we, we were just speaking. We weren't, we didn't do anything wrong or what, what is the defense? The defense is that we had a right to protest. We right. come at a protest. Abby's whole position was that he was he was there to protest, and they wanted a festival of life in the park, and brought all the yippies to Chicago. And there were speeches. Bobby Seale showed up to make a speech. He was there one day, made a speech, went back to California, and he was indicted in the Chicago Eight case. Crazy. It's so nuts. Yeah. And and so does does Abby I imagine he testifies in the case. He does. Yeah. He's how was that? How did that defendant. go? You know, there was a, a lot of disagreements in the defense campus to what should be done after the government's case, which was pitiful. It was a lot of informants, a lot of undercovers, and you know, this is sort of Obvious stuff. Kunstler and La- and and Wineglass wanted a rest after the government's case. Abby wouldn't hear of it. Just wouldn't hear of it. How long was he on the stand? He was on the stand a day and a half. But there was a hundred other witnesses that he got to come testify. <laughs> Unbelievable. Famous people, Judy Collins, Allen Ginsberg, Norman Mailer, Jesse Jackson, everybody. It became an honor to be called as a witness for the defendants. I bet. I bet. I bet people were upset when they didn't get called. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me. Tell me. Go ahead. Bill Oaks, Arlo Guthrie, Country Joe McDonald, Dick Gregory, on and on. So they wonderful. all wanted to say who they were, what they were about, and what happened in Chicago in the parks and in the streets. How did Abby do on his direct and cross? Did he hold up on cross? You know, first of all, larger Abby plans. The summer, August, early August, before the trial started in September, he didn't get on the witness stand until December. In August, Woodstock. Hmm. Abby went to Woodstock and tried to turn, it was just a concert. He turned it into an anti-war civil rights event, which people think it was, but it was really just a concert. He wrote a book within 10 days of Woodstock called Woodstock Nation, talking about a nation of different young people who wanted to change the world. The Chicago trial starts in September. When he gets on the witness stand in December, name and address, Abby Hoffman, Woodstock Nation. <laughs> the judge says, what? Where do you live? Woodstock Nation is nation. It's a state of mind, he says. It's so great. It's so great. Uh, the prosecutors probably had no idea what to do with this guy. Nothing. I mean, it was, you know. So, so you, you and Seal obviously get different contempt charges, but there's the judge has like a hundred and something contempt charges throughout this trial. Yeah, every time. I mean, look, it became as Abby wanted it to become 
an event that was filled with fighting and speaking. And, you know, one day Abby and Jerry Rubin show up with robes on, like judicial robes. They take them off and they have cop uniforms underneath. You know, every day it was another thing. That's how I feel in most of my trials. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, and at nights, you know, Abby sensed that they were going to get a conviction one way or another. He would go to college campuses, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, wherever, speak before thousands of students about the war, anti-war movement and the trial. The movie portrays this as a comedic act, not in the least. Mm. Of course, he was he was interesting and humorous, uh, but it was all about organizing the de- the day after. He called it TDA. The day after, you know what you have to do. Well, when the convictions came, millions of people went into the streets all around the country. There were five hundred thousand at the Boston Commons. The Bank of America was burned in San Diego to the ground. It wow. was wild. And, and so, you know, the the clients are convicted. Um, you must have felt pretty good about the chances on appeal or no? Of course, the judge was in outrage. Yeah. The Seventh Circuit, as I said, came down and issued orders on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so why, t- tell me, how, why do they reverse the convictions? He was an activist seeking combat. That's what that, the Seventh Circuit says. That's what the Seventh Circuit said. They, they saw through him. It's so of wonderful. Course. So wonderful. An activist seeking combat. That's a quote. Great. <laughs> Gr- great quote. Great quote. So after a trial like this, I mean, you know, you're you're so young at the beginning of your career and you have this this trial of the century. What are the takeaways? For, for not just you, but in general from this case after you finish it? Well, I, I was not a normal lawyer. <laughs> I was organized into a movement. Right. I felt very much a part of that movement. The, the National Lawyers Guild was part of that movement. There were lots of lawyers who were volunteering to represent Panthers, civil rights activists, anti-war activists. We were in the streets and we were representing people who were trying to change the country and believed in that mission. And that trial, if anything, made you want to do it more. Kunstler was a regular lawyer before that trial. Right. He had an office on Fifth Avenue. His firm with his brother did mostly commercial work. That trial ended all that. And, and you know, Jerry, um, we see a lot of sort of ripples from that time period now, Black Lives Matter, some other things, but but nothing like that movement, nothing like what was going on in the late 60s. Uh, what, what, are, what, can we, what can we learn from that time in, in terms of making, making uh, our voices heard? You know, 
that that whole movement is evidence of what you could do when you when you organize, go out into the streets and make your views known. <clears throat> you know, there's a thing. Let me get this. I'm going to read you something. I hope you can hear me. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Somebody asked Abby many years later, what were the 60s all about? What did it mean? He said the following without skipping a beat. In the 1960s, apartheid was driven out of America. Legal segregation, Jim Crow ended. We didn't end racism, but we ended legal segregation. We ended the idea that you could send a million soldiers 10,000 miles away to fight a war that people do not support. We ended the idea that women are second-class citizens. Now it doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office. Even George Bush has to talk about child care. But the battles that were won in that period of civil war and strife, you cannot reverse. We were young, we were reckless, arrogant, silly, headstrong, and we were right. I regret nothing. Wow, what a great, unbelievable quote. I got goosebumps just hearing you read it. It's unbelievable. So, so good. Let me, let me ask you this, um, just to segue to you for a moment, um, because you've had such a wonderful career and done such important cases. One of the things that young lawyers always ask me is, you know, how do you get started in criminal defense? How do you get uh, going? What what advice can you give to the young lawyers out there? Volunteerism. People do not appreciate the power of what you could do as a volunteer. If you want to be a criminal defense lawyer, I would find criminal defense lawyers that would allow me to volunteer to help them. Get out there, do it. Don't wait to be called on. That's what I did. I volunteered. Great advice. And and you got very active in the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Of course, you were the president of the organization, really put it on the map uh, back in the day. How, how important is that organization to get involved in? Well, it's a, to me, it stems from my fight as a public defender for fair trials, for defense lawyers who mean something, who have resources to do the job that they're asked to do. And so for me to morph into the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, I founded the, the, the Foundation for Criminal Defense Lawyers with NACDL with a client's big check. We did very well for a client and he wanted to do something for us. And so we said, we're going to start a foundation for criminal defense. And it, of course, has been uniquely powerful in so many ways. Amazing. And NACDL grew from an office of two or three to 17 or whatever it is and does work in every area. And, and more than 10,000 members now. It's, it's really quite amazing. Yep. And it's everywhere. <laughs> it's it's so true. Well, Jerry, listen, I, I want to thank you for doing this. I learned a lot. And it's so wonderful to talk to a lawyer who's done so much good uh, and, and has fought the f- good fight for so long. So thank you for 
for joining me on this podcast. Well, it's a lot of fun. Thank you, Jerry. You brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> well, hearing that quote gave me goosebumps. I, I, I want to I wanna read more of those. That was, that was something else. I'll start a revolution. You keep me out of jail. I just love that quote and the other quotes that Jerry read from Abby Hoffman. I also love the one, uh, the story, there's no menu left court. I mean, so many good stories from this trial. And there's been a lot of movies about it. The most recent with Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman. Uh, you should check it out. It's, it's really great stuff. Next week, we have Lisa Wayne, who is running NACDL now, and she just got a huge win in federal court. And I really want to thank Jerry Lefcourt for coming on the show. The guy's a mensch and a great lawyer. And uh, you'll hear another great one next week with Lisa. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks.